This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery again. In this China History Podcast episode, we will examine part one of a special three-part series covering the life of Sir Edmund Trelawney Backhouse, second baronet. Before I begin and, well, start going on like I do, allow me to admit to you that prior to 2013, if I had read about Edmund Backhouse, the name didn't stick with me. And if you further permit me to sound like the shameless name dropper that I am, one evening at Kaiser Guo's place, very late, Kaiser told me about Backhouse. And in the course of the introduction, he told me about the one particular story that perhaps Backhouse is most famous for. We'll get to that in a minute. I have to admit, I felt a little taken aback. You know, in the world of China history podcasting, I was quite well known and established. Yet, how did I get this far in life and not hear of Edmund Backhouse or this totally outrageous story? So as soon as I got back to my hotel that night, I had to look him up. And sure enough, just as Kaiser said, I added Backhouse to the list of topics and figured when the time came, I'll think of some tasteful way to present his life. From the moment foreigners began running amok in China after the Opium Wars, there have been a galaxy of Westerners that have played their roles, big and small, on the China state, and continue to this very day. Some we remember, some we forget, and most, despite the great things they've done, we never heard of. I've featured a few of these Westerners in China as uh, past topics, and I still have a lot of these people queued up for later China History Podcast episodes. Today, we look at Backhouse, Sir Edmund Trelawney Backhouse. We remember Sir Edmund for several things, all of which we'll look at in this episode. But I guess his most famous claim to fame has to be the salacious, pornographic, 150,000-word memoir he left behind in 1943 as he lay dying at St. Michel Hospital in Beijing. There's this book written by an author who died in 1999 named Gary Jennings. It's called The Journeyer. It's an historical novel about Marco Polo's journey to China. I mentioned this book, I think, in the uh, CHP 10 episode on Kublai Khan. Basically, the book opens up with Marco Polo on his deathbed being pressed to recant all these stories he told in the book of his travels that he collaborated with uh, Rusticello. And Marco Polo replied that he hadn't even told half of what really happened on those travels to and from Yuan Dynasty China from 1276 to 1291. So the journeyer then goes on to tell the real story of Marco Polo's travels to the east. The book is just fantastic. One of my all-time faves. Well, it's almost but not quite the same thing as this. As he lay dying in the hospital in his final year of life, Backhouse was encouraged by the man caring for him, a Swiss doctor and diplomat, Reinhard Herpley, to write down all these amazing and fantastical stories Backhouse had been telling him. He proceeded to do so, and the resulting manuscript was entitled Decadence Manchu, 
the China Memoirs of Sir Edmund Trelawney Backhouse. Herpley didn't have to read more than a few pages into the first chapter, which opens up in a gay brothel, to know that 1943 was a little too early for this kind of writing. He buried the manuscript for a while and decided to wait things out, see how the world advanced, or degraded, before these memoirs would see the light of day. Is man not mortal? Well, Herpley was, when he knew the jig was up and he could hear the footsteps of disease and old age coming up the stairwell. He delivered the manuscript to the Bodleian Library at Oxford and to a well-respected expert in these matters, the English historian Hugh Trevor Roper. The upshot to Herpley revealing this journal to Trevor Roper can now be found in two main books. The first is Hugh Trevor Roper's 1976 biography of Backhouse entitled Hermit of Peking, The Hidden Life of Edmund Backhouse. The other is this well, pornographic memoir, Décadence Manchu, which in French translates to Manchu Decadence. Bob Guccione's movie Caligula was like Wuthering Heights compared to this story. And if you want to get your hands on your own personal copy, the venerable and respected publishing house of Earnshaw Books, where quality books on China and beyond can be found, has published this work for all the curious to read and enjoy. Check them out at www.earnshawbooks.com. American writer and well-known China hand Derek Sandhouse went through this whole salacious Alice in Wonderland tale, and in 2011, with the cooperation of Earnshaw Books, these memoirs, after lying hidden for 68 years, were published. Derek Sandhouse was on Seneca earlier this year in 2014 discussing his new book, Baijiu, The Essential Guide to Chinese Spirits. If Baijiu is your thing, you must get this definitive book on the subject. The central story in this memoir revolves around Backhouse's alleged nine-year affair he had with the Empress Dowager Cixi, serving the great woman as a sex toy and companion. Backhouse was a very good writer, in the Victorian style, so it's really a trip to be reading such smut, but in this very respectable Victorian English, sprinkled prodigiously with French, Latin, and Chinese. If graphic porn isn't your thing, then you can give this book a pass. But if that kind of stuff doesn't bother you too bad, it's an amazing read. Hey, it's so far out to read this and think, man, this is 1943, and even back then people wrote stuff like this. So The Backhouse Affair with Cixi is this memoir's marquee story. But there's more to it than that. Actually, that aspect of Backhouse's life only came at the very end of the end, as he lay dying after a long and interesting life. Prior to Décadence Manchu, there was a whole incredible and crazy life that was lived in China before his end came in January 1944. So let's look at the whole long and complicated story of Sir Edmund Trelawney Backhouse. His fascinating story told against the backdrop of China between the four and a half decades from 1898 to 1943. 
we've looked at this period in many CHP past episodes. The, the Qing Dynasty series, the aftermath of the Xinhai Revolution, the May 4th Movement, founding of the CCP, China in the early 1920s, the Shanghai Massacre, Sir Robert Hart, China and Japan, 1895-1945, the warlord Maz, Karl Crow, and that Moishe Kohn episode, too. This was the time of the Empress Dowager Cixi and the Guangxu Emperor. The First and Second Sino-Japanese War, the Hundred Days of Reform, Kanyo Wei, Yuan Shikai, the Boxer Rebellion, the torching of the Summer Palace, Wu Chang Uprising, the end of the Qing, Japanese invasion, the warlords, the rise of sun, Jiang, Mao, all these events were playing in the background while Backhouse was doing his thing in China. Sir Edmund, if you didn't guess it, came from a nice, rich, aristocratic family. But he was the black sheep of the family, and as soon as he was old enough, his father got rid of him and made him a remittance man. Someone who lived off the remittances from home, paid by the pater familias to keep the near-do-well son as far away from the family as possible. So while he came from money, once he left England in 1898, his father's generosity till his dying day never rose beyond the barest absolute minimum. Backhouse's relationship with his mother was horrible, and they both couldn't stand each other. Why did his family despise him so? Let me quote from uh, Sterling Seagrave's 1992 work, Dragon Lady, The Life and Legend of the Last Empress of China. Seagrave wrote, quote, They all hated him because not only was Edmund a liar, a cheat, and a thief, but at the same time, ostentatiously homosexual, a combination that seems to have been a bit more than his parents could handle. None of these attributes was unusual among his contemporaries, singly or in combination, but Edmund had the additional disadvantage of being functionally insane. He was brilliant, but highly unstable, a true exotic with an extraordinary fantasy world and long bouts of psychotic depression. He was born in 1873 in Richmond, Yorkshire, his father was Sir Jonathan Backhouse and his mother Florence Salisbury Trelawney, hence his name, Trelawney Backhouse. He attended schools at St. George's, Ascot, Winchester College, and then on to Oxford. He studied at Oxford but never received his degree. He dropped out of Oxford in the summer of 1895. Seagrave further said, quote, Edmund Backhouse was the brilliantly flawed product of an unhappy childhood. Although his younger brothers became soldiers and admirals, Edmund was a bad seed, the despair of his mother and father. He particularly loathed his mother Florence, conceiving a great pouch of venom he later vented on the Dowager Empress. At Oxford, he squandered his inheritance trying to join Oscar Wilde's circle of homosexuals, then fled England and bankruptcy to appear in Peking one day in early 1899. This was right after the Treaty of Shimonoseki had been signed, ending the First Sino-Japanese War. Things were now really hotting up in China. The Empress Dowager had been in power for 34 years already, ever since the death of her husband, the Xianfeng Emperor, in 1861. So early 1899, at one of Sir Robert Hart's lawn parties, Fate delivered 26-year-old Edmund Backhouse into the hands of one of the great characters of late 19th century, early 20th century journalism in China, the 
Australian Dr. George Ernest Morrison, a.k.a. Morrison of Peking. And in the fashion of Charles George Gordon, he was also known as Chinese Morrison. He was the Beijing correspondent for the Times, now part of Rupert Murdoch's News UK subsidiary. He was the top journalist of his day. And in 1897, the Times' first full-time correspondent based in Beijing. Morrison knew how to write a good story. And like Wang Qianfu from the last CHP episode, he sometimes didn't allow facts to get in the way of his stories. He wasn't a William Randolph Hearst type, but I guess you could say he was cut from the same or similar cloth. He was like Teddy Roosevelt. He was an adventurer, a tough guy, an intimidating guy. His presence would light up and dominate a room. But he had one shortcoming. Even though he was this big fish in Beijing, he didn't speak Chinese. So you can imagine what a handicap this would be. He was totally dependent on others that he didn't trust. He had to have everything translated and interpreted. But despite all this, within a few years, as the Times Beijing correspondent... He was a major figure in the expat community. Just before Backhouse hooked up with Morrison of Peking and became his boy, young Edmund first applied to work as an interpreter at China Imperial Customs. This meant he had to first interview personally with Sir Robert Hart, who we introduced in CHP episode 58. Backhouse came with very nice letters of recommendation, but despite all that, Sir Robert Hart didn't let him in. So having, so having failed to enter China Imperial Customs, Backhouse had to look elsewhere, and Fortune matched him up with Morrison of Peking. Backhouse was a godsend. What else is there to say? His collective linguistic skills and insight into Qing Dynasty politics made Morrison shine like never before at the times. Morrison was more of a patron to Backhouse than an employer. As the story goes, Morrison... Didn't pay Backhouse anything, but he took care of him. So much did Morrison rely on Backhouse for all his dispatches to London that it was hard to tell where one began and the other ended. Backhouse was invaluable. And Morrison, knowing this, was extreme in his possessiveness of Backhouse. At any time he felt someone was moving in on him to take Backhouse away or distract his Backhouse from anything except translating and helping him write his stories. Morrison didn't like it. And Morrison of Peking swung a big bat, and no one liked to mess with him. In April of 1899, Backhouse was bit by a dog, and Morrison sent him to Shanghai for treatment. There in Shanghai, he was introduced to another of the main characters of our story. This was John Otway Percy Bland, J.O.P. Bland, 1863-1945. Bland was one of Robert Hart's gang at Customs and worked for him for many years, rising up to be the great man's private secretary. At heart, Bland was a writer, and though he had this long career in Customs and the civil service in China, it was writing that gave him pleasure. Bland and Backhouse became close almost at once. Morrison hated Bland, and resented his collaboration with Backhouse. Later on, Morrison will act as the overt black hand to get rid of Bland after Bland moved up to Beijing and began freelancing for the Times in direct competition with Morrison. And as the story goes, Bland couldn't remind Morrison enough about his shortcomings, you know, 
being unable to speak Mandarin, and that he, Bland, could. Backhouse, in the meantime, by early 1900, was living with one G.P. Peachy, an eccentric lad chased out of Britain's consular service over an affair with a married woman, it's said. They lived in a house in an outlying village, uh, and around that time, the two disappeared for a nine-week adventure traveling around Mongolia. They returned to Beijing just in time for the Boxer Rebellion. Like most all foreigners, Backhouse and Peachy ran straight to the legation quarter and hunkered down with the rest of the Laowais. Backhouse survived the Boxer Rebellion and emerged with all the other foreigners when it was all over. To vent a little, the foreigners went on a rampage, looting anything that wasn't bolted or cemented to the ground. Edmund Backhouse helped himself to the recent and suddenly vacated home of a Qing court official named Jingshan. He was a Manchu scholar and a clansman of Cixi who served as the assistant secretary of the imperial household. Not of particularly high rank, but enough of an insider to know everything that was going on inside the sanctum sanctorum of uh, Qing imperial China. In August 1900, Right around the time uh, the Boxer Rebellion ended, 78-year-old Jingshan was murdered by his own son. And it was three days after that, Backhouse moved into Jingshan's house. There, one of the defining moments in the life of Edmund Backhouse happened. He found a diary. The Diary of His Excellency, Jingshan, and the decades to follow the yin and the yang of delight and disappointment over this Jingshan diary will keep rearing its head all the way until Backhouse breathes his last in 1944. You see, no one was actually standing right there with a GoPro or an iPhone handy to record the moment. But Backhouse, to his dying day, will claim that he found the diary, kept it secret from everyone, and slowly translated it between 1900 and 1909, and that his translation was absolutely faithful to the original document he found. Backhouse was well, completely fluent in both Mandarin and Manchu, so he was totally qualified to perform this translation. We'll come back to this Jingshan diary again and again in this story. Backhouse had a pretty good run after the Boxer Rebellion. It was a whole new dynamic now in Beijing once the Boxer Protocol was signed. The relationship between the foreign powers and the Qing government became even more symbiotic than ever after Cixi and her court returned to the palace in September 1901. The Chinese government was told to behave, and the foreign powers investigated ways for the government to pay up this indemnity that far exceeded the Treasury's annual revenue. In China's century of humiliation, it couldn't get any worse than this. The following year, in 1902, Backhouse, along with several others, salvaged many treasures from the looted Summer Palace and well, facilitated their return to the Forbidden City. This act of honesty and kindness brought Backhouse to the attention of two of the three most powerful people in the Qing Imperial Court. This was, of course, Cixi and the chief eunuch, and perhaps the best-known imperial eunuch of all time, Li Lianying. In 1903, Backhouse took a position at the institution that became Peking University as a uh, professor of law and literature. He taught there for a period of about 10 years. However, during this period, his main attention was paid to serving Morrison as his principal translator and aide-de-camp. In 1904, Ronglu died. 
I've mentioned him before. He was the Viceroy of Chirli, among many other titles. But more importantly, he was Cixi's cousin. Western history hasn't been particularly kind to Ronglu, pointing out that he was the key person in the conservative faction in the government. It's also said he was all for the killing of the foreigners when the Boxer Rebellion reached a fever pitch. Later on, scholars will produce documents showing Ronglu actually helped save the foreigners, but he was anti-reform and was principally responsible for Kang Youwei's failure during the Hundred Days Reform. But for the purposes of our little backhouse story, Ronglu led the troops who in 1861 put the Empress Dowager Cixi in charge of things and was also rumored to have been Cixi's lover or one of her lovers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Officially, Ronglu was the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, grand counselor, and Cixi's closest advisor. More of that later. It was at this time, with the passing of Ronglu, where Backhouse claims that he first came to the attention of the old Buddha, as she was called. Around this time, Morrison had written to Bland, saying of Backhouse, he, quote, now speaks Mongol with the greatest fluency and will quickly have mastered Manchu, speaking it, reading it, writing it. No one in Peking approaches him in the ease with which he can translate Chinese, unquote. When a new British minister, the noted Japanologist Ernest Sato, arrived on the scene in Beijing, Backhouse made himself useful to him as a translator of documents. Morrison wasn't paying Backhouse any kind of salary, so he had to resort to all these consulting jobs, doing mostly translation work and jobs that utilized his Chinese expertise. Backhouse made his first trip back to England in 1906. Whether or not he was actually in poor health, we'll never know, but Backhouse was one of the great hypochondriacs of his age. He not only imagined illnesses, but feigned them as well, using poor health or some chronic ailment as an excuse for some matter or non-performance of duties. By 1908, things were pretty strained between Morrison and Backhouse. They grew very close after working together like they did. I would say they both knew each other pretty well. And Morrison, it seems, had figured stuff out about Backhouse that others failed to see. That was what everyone said decades later after all the smoke cleared and the fog lifted from the life of Edmund Backhouse. Only Morrison got him right. Morrison, as we'll see in a bit, spewed plenty of hate in Backhouse's direction, but he never took him down all the way. After all, Backhouse also had plenty of dirt on Morrison as well and could have bloodied him too if it came to that. But Morrison of Peking, that giant in his day, he knew all about the dark side of Backhouse and what he was capable of. As his resentment of Morrison stewed inside his mind, Backhouse began to get closer to J.O.P. Bland. These were two kindred spirits in the scholarly sense. After Bland moved to Beijing in 1907, the two began to run into each other more often, and 
whenever Morrison would see them together, he'd fly into a rage or grumble and you know make some mental note of it. In Bland, Morrison saw a potential rival. In Morrison, Bland saw nothing but a cold-blooded imperialist and someone who stood for everything he couldn't stand about the foreigners' presence in China. Who would get to control Backhouse was a real point of contention between these two. Morrison was as much a seeker of adventure as he was a foreign correspondent. He would always wander off on these incredible adventures and treks out to wild, untamed places. In 1908, he was off on one of these adventures when, in November of that year, Cixi died. She had been an unchallenged power in China for 46 years. Actually, she was always challenged, but she kept all contenders at bay or killed them. It was a shocker of all shockers when she died suddenly. On November 13th, two days before she died, Cixi had, without warning, changed the heir to the throne to be the eldest son of Prince Chun, seventh son of the Daoguang Emperor. Prince Chun was a half-brother to the Xianfeng Emperor, husband of Cixi. The mother of this new heir, Pu Yi, was Ronglu's daughter. So he was totally legit, and from the same clan as Cixi to boot. So Pu Yi, the famous last emperor of John Lone, Bernardo Bertolucci fame, out of nowhere on November 13th has made the heir. The next day, on the 14th, the Guangxu emperor died mysteriously followed up in less than 24 hours by the death of the Empress Dowager herself. And when all this went down in 1908, Morrison was out of town and missed the whole thing. Bland could have scooped Morrison, but he too was incapacitated, unable to rise from his bed. Hugh Trevor Roper wrote, quote, In such an concurrence of accidents, only Backhouse, Morrison's expert, the real writer of so much of Morrison's dispatches, could save the reputation of the times, unquote. So Backhouse wrote an entire account of what went down in Beijing during those 72 hours. He gave his draft to Bland, who polished it up and put his silky touch to the story. Then they sent it on to the head office. And from that accidental collaboration that came about because of a sudden turn of events, the Backhouse and Bland relationship began. This would be a long-lasting partnership, although there was a long period of no contact towards the autumn of their years. Like Adams and Jefferson, they kept up a healthy correspondence late in life. You'll see through Backhouse's life, especially where Westerners were concerned, none of the friendships he had were long-lasting. With J.O.P. Bland, there was an exception. Backhouse wrote to Bland, quote, I cannot help feeling that the Empress Dowager's decease, however lamentable in other respects, was a lucky event for me in that it gave me the chance of being privileged to make your acquaintance, unquote. Shortly after the death of Cixi, Backhouse began to do some work on the side for Lord French, an Irish peer who worked as an agent for the British railroad construction firm Pauling and Company. I love this guy's name. His surname was French. That's lowercase double F French, not capital F, R-E-N-C-H. Double F and lowercase. Wow. I just thought that was so far out. Backhouse went to work for French as a general China specialist and was told to keep his eyes and ears open for anything political that might be useful to pass on. Backhouse was a shameless name dropper, just like me with Kaiser Guo. He'd go on endlessly about all the people he knew at the Manchu court. No doubt he was 
very familiar with many Chinese in Beijing, but he'd make a big deal about knowing guys like Liang Shiyi, a major political animal of his day and big-time financier. He also claimed to know the Grand Secretary of the Qing Court, Xu Shichang. No one could validate half the stuff he said, and if you tried, there would be smoke and mirrors everywhere. He was such a respectable-looking chap, terribly polite, and knew how to turn on the charm. And the extent of his linguistic skills and his scholarship were already well-known in certain circles of the expat community. So no one suspected that, you know, he was blowing the bull when he claimed to know all kinds of personas famosas. Lord French was sufficiently satisfied with Backhouse to offer him a position at his firm, Pauling and Company. So Backhouse started working for French. There was another member of this trio. This was Willard Strait. He was Morgan and Harriman's guy in China. They were financing some of these railroad deals in China. Strait was very close to Bland. So Strait, French, and Backhouse began to hang out a lot together during this period. Occasionally, Backhouse would earn a little chicken scratch doing some work on the side for Strait as well. Lord French was thinking having an expert China hand at his beck and call would prove to be invaluable in reading the oracle bones and in gaining an inside track over the competition. So Backhouse began to hang out with this crowd who gave him a little taste of the world of international trade and big business. This excited Backhouse, and he fancied himself, uh, you know, a bit of a mover and shaker. This new position, working for French, like anything else he had done up till now, he insisted be kept private. He was petrified that Morrison might find out, and he didn't want any trouble. He was always trying to keep his outside affairs secret from Morrison, you know, someone who made it his business to know everything that was going on in Beijing. Right about this time, Backhouse is going to do something that is going to earn him everlasting enmity from Morrison. He's going to go behind Morrison's back and collaborate with his rival, J.O.P. Bland. And together, these two scholars will produce two books that will stun the world of history and sinology. These two books were China Under the Empress Dowager, published in 1910, and Annals and Memoirs of the Court of Peking, published in 1914. Both were big hits. And the main source material that produced the most sensational revelations and memorable passages from the book was this Jingshan diary that Backhouse had discovered in Jingshan's house right at the close of the Boxer Rebellion. Remember that? In August of 1910, after keeping it hidden, Backhouse had sent it to Bland when he was in London, and after Bland had read it and had been suitably blown away, Bland deposited the papers with the British Museum for safekeeping. This Jingshan diary was quite a find. Backhouse had kept this thing under wraps for all these years. He never told Morrison, and for that he'd get on Chinese Morrison's you-know-what list and stayed there till Morrison kicked the bucket in 1920. And if Morrison ran into Backhouse in the afterlife, he probably still held this against him. This was a double whammy to Morrison. Not only had Backhouse kept this sensational diary from him all these years, but he took it to his rival, Bland, instead, and collaborated with the enemy. Up until this point in time, when Backhouse produced the Jingshan Diary, historians were still scratching their heads about what all went down inside the top palace leadership at the moment of crisis, during and right after the Boxer Rebellion. Who was lined up on what side? Who said what? This diary was like a tell-all book that just 
outed the entire Manchu royal family. Back in the early 1900s, when books were the TMZ of their day, all the revelations contained in this diary really rocked not only the small world of sinologists everywhere, but even popular society as well. The Empress Dowager was quite a character, and so little was known about her. Now she was laid bare for all to see, and she had already passed from this earth and couldn't refute a thing. 1909-1910, Backhouse spent a lot of time in Scotland and England. During his stop in London, Backhouse popped into the head office at Pauling and Company, engaged in a spot of office politics and went behind French's back and cut a nice deal for himself. When French found out, he was livid and their relationship suffered. In time, French was able to get rid of Backhouse and he soon left the employ of Pauling. And he didn't just piss off French, did the same thing to Willard Strait. And after these two small but steady streams of income dried up, Backhouse began to sweat it. He was one of those guys who was always short of funds. Because of his skill set, he was quite useful to some people who paid him for his expertise. But it didn't all add up to a lot, and he was always lamenting about his finances. Then came this Tsushi book. Backhouse had written to Bland, quote, If you had time to compose the narrative, I could supply the translations and a certain amount of personal anecdote as well, which you could embellish with your style, unquote. As things progressed, Bland was humbly insistent that this was all Backhouse's book, and he was merely adding a little color. He was very sincere in his letters about this. So sensational and amazing were the translations Backhouse was providing. Bland was feeling his role as merely the packager and editor, and this was really nothing compared with what Backhouse was contributing. Not only did Backhouse have the Jingshan diary, he had gotten his hands on a slew of imperial edicts and other palace documents. When Backhouse went to London in April 1909, he popped in to visit the proposed publisher of this first book with Bland. Bland had written to this publisher, William Heinemann, and said this about Backhouse. He, quote, is very shy and nervous and horribly afraid of publishers and businessmen generally, being imbued with the philosophic attitudes of the early Song dynasty. But perhaps you may be able to lure him to a meeting and thus see a sample of his work, which is certain to create a sensation of the biggest kind, unquote. <laughs> Bland only knew. Just on the strength of that Jingshan diary alone, Heinemann was sold. After others all around London turned it down, he agreed to be the publisher. Then Backhouse did this complete about-face and started to make a real big deal to Bland about taking his name off and that it should only be by Bland, no Backhouse showing anywhere. Bland was already quite aware of Backhouse's eccentricities and was an old hand when it came to dealing with Backhouse's erratic and capricious behavior. Bland kept assuring Backhouse there was no way with this great contribution that he made that his name should be taken off. Bland knew he didn't deserve it alone. Backhouse was the key and the driving force. Bland just made it all readable. Backhouse even insisted to sell all his rights away, taking 200 pounds from Bland and selling him his entire interest in the book, should it make anything. The book ended up making plenty, and Bland, even though he technically didn't have to, was a total sport about it and faithfully paid all monies due to Backhouse, all the way up to 1917 when they 
parted ways for a while. Backhouse almost got his way to make J.O.P. Bland the sole author, but in the end, Heinemann made that call, and in October 1910, China, under the Empress Dowager, hit the shelves. Eight editions printed in 18 months. It was a total and complete hit, an international hit. made a lot of money, and Backhouse was able to breathe easy for a bit. The timing for this book to come out was impeccable. Merely two years after the death of Cixi and a year before the walls came tumbling down in the Forbidden City with the Xinhai Revolution, people were just blown away by this book. The detail, the revelations made, the way it brought you right inside the walls and palaces of the Forbidden City. Trevor Roper said, quote, What Bland and Backhouse supplied was the first documented and readable public account of the whole reign. It was compiled from authentic Chinese sources, supplied and translated by the profound scholar Backhouse, but addressed to a literate English public by the fluent and efficient journalist Bland. No other work presents so clear a picture of the decadent Manchu court, with its archaic etiquette, its universal corruption, its impossible dilemmas, or the masterful, narrow, single-mindedness, egotism of its illegitimate but irremovable ruler." Unquote. The Jingshan Diary was the centerpiece of the whole thing. Without that, the book would have fallen flat. There would have been no book. Thanks to the diary, all the inner workings of the court were revealed. As you turned the pages, you became a fly on the wall inside the palace, watching all the main cast of characters play their role in those Boxer Rebellion days. Who said what? Who lined up against the foreigners? Up until this book came out, Ronglu had always been considered the bad guy during the Boxer Rebellion. He was in charge of the imperial army that turned on the foreign legation complex. But Backhouse said that was all wrong. During the time of the Boxers, Ronglu had tried his best to stop them and to reason with them. So he went from being a bad guy to a good guy. Not only that... The diaries had revealed that Ronglu was pro-West. Yeah, he came out smelling quite fragrant. The real bad guy in this book was the Empress Dowager. She got skewered. I guess everything that she became notorious for grew out of this book. Her anti-West politics, her ruthlessness, how she sided with the boxers, fought tooth and nail against reform. This stigma has stuck to the Empress Dowager all the way into our modern times. And in the West, it all mostly grew out of this book. So much negative did Backhouse reveal from the Jingshan Diary. He began to fear reprisals from the Manchu court. And he was correct in his thinking. Upon hearing about this book and learning of its contents, everyone in the palace was livid. This book by Backhouse and Bland really kicked up a you-know-what storm inside the Chinese government. No one was amused, and they hated that all this got out, like my unedited version of that uh, Wang Qinfu episode. The new Empress Dowager, Cixi's niece, Longyu, was especially incensed at this diary because the authors had the audacity to call her unattractive. So Backhouse was flooded with self-doubt and didn't want to have his name on the title page. Then he got all paranoid about repercussions from Manchu officials. But when an apprehensive backhouse arrived back in Beijing, the imperial household had bigger troubles to deal with than getting even with Edmund Backhouse. 
He would have stayed away even further, but Sir Jonathan Backhouse pulled a few strings and lined up a job for his son with the naval ship manufacturer John Brown Limited. This was a very respectable job with a respectable firm, and Backhouse had to get back to Beijing to start working for them. With the success of the first book, China Under the Empress Dowager, work began on a prequel. But before that would be published, Backhouse was going to start making a name for himself as a patron of Oxford's Bodleian Library. But that's for next episode. We'll put the bookmark in here, and in the next episode we will look at part two of the life of Sir Edmund Backhouse. Until then, this is Laszlo Montgomery wishing you the very best, thanking you for your listenership, and I hope you'll come back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.